the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Where are we going, fellas? To the, to the top. top. What top? To the very, very top. top. They had this chant, and John would say, where are we going, fellas? And the others, in an American accent, and the others would say, to the top, Johnny. Get the exact wording right. Um, where's that, fellas? To the toppermost of the poppermost, Johnny. <laughs> and that was there rallying call in when times were bad to kind of yes you know we're still here we're still together a lot of irony in it as well it was kind of done in a heavy american accent as a sender welcome to august of 1963 here in toppermost of the poppermost i'm ed chen i'm kid o'toole and i'm martin quibell august 1963 to a certain extent that's when everything would change in the UK. The Beatles would really make a splash on the charts. The song would be released at the end of the month. It wouldn't appear on the charts until September, but the release date is what is kind of crucial to us. And, and one thing that has always made me wonder, what was it like to actually be there? The Pop Go the Beatles episode on the 20th of August, three days before the single came out, included She Loves You. So if you were a listener to Pop Go the Beatles, you were a Beatles fan at the time, the first time you heard it would have been them doing it live in the studio, not live, but on the radio. Can you just imagine sitting there and your jaw is dropping? Like, what is that? (laughs) I mean, to hear it for the first time, can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, not just to hear it for the first time, but to hear it on the Beatles show with them talking about it. And then to hear it again a couple days later in a different version on Saturday Club. Wow. Enough time for you to go out and pick up the single, and then there they are playing it live again for the second time on British radio. Once again, envying you first-generation fans that got to experience it for the first time right there. Wow. And now for the moment, Beatles fans the world over have been waiting for, because uh, here's a brand-new record by the Beatles. It's written by Paul and John here. It's only just been released. Tell us something about it. Well, Andy, it's a record, you see, Rod. And 45 RPM. So, and it's just Tom. released. Just yeah. released, Tom. And it's called uh-huh. She Loves You! We talked a little bit about it through past episodes. It was kind of influenced by the Bobby Rydell song, Forget Him, in as much as that was a call and response record. But it's described from the third person, so Paul got the idea to write one, and John and Paul, in the hotel room during the Roy Orbison tour, came up with the idea. Paul talked about this quite a bit in interviews that meant a great deal to them early on in writing pop songs that they really liked having, you know, songs that directly address the listener. And this is a perfect example of it. And I think this is also a perfect example of, boy, did they know a pop hook. This song is just a pop hook all over the place. You know, to have... A call and response. And this is, of course, She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> she Loves You was a, was a brilliant song. Uh, uh, one of the most vital songs that they had. Terrific uh, atmosphere to it. 
and a great song to be performed live. It was the kind of song which not only um, aroused emotion when they first heard it, but also uh, kept it going uh, with the, the way that they actually sang and the way they shook their heads and so on. And uh, the young girls would um, be moved enormously by it. Uh, Norman Smith was our engineer at the time, later known as Hurricane Smith in his own right as an artist. And um, he, when he saw the lyrics on the, on, the, on, the, on the table at the beginning of the session, thought this is going to be an awful song because it read, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 and so on. And he thought, well, what kind of a lyric is that? And that has that sing-along quality to it. And as we all know, Paul's dad didn't like the yeah, yeah, yeah too much. Too many of those darn Americanisms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, couldn't they sing yes, yes, yes? No, of course they couldn't. <laughs> There's a description of the song, which I found on the internet, which I really, really like. For Lennon and McCartney, the challenge seemed to be how to perfect a model that had worked so well with the previous songs. Personal pronouns? Check. Up-tempo optimism? Check. Vocal harmonies? Check. Repeated song hook? Check. Stopping the song with punctuating chords? Check. Isley Brothers' woos performed while shaking their heads? Check. All of these devices and a few others had been successful in their songs and performances in 1963. The trick would be to make it all sound new again and to provide something that they could perform live. What they created may be the ultimate example of how the Beatles themselves contributed to the creation of Beatlemania. Indeed, McCartney has described She Loves You as custom-built for the record we had to make. So, yeah, they knew. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, th I think that's a perfect description. As I said, they knew this early. Lennon and McCartney knew how to write a pop record that would break through the clutter of other songs on the radio and would stick in the brain and would have that sing-along quality. And that's a good point, too, what they could perform live. We've already mentioned how good pupils they were and viewers of what was going on in the music world and in the charts. So they had that knowledge there to be able to create this song. Yeah, that's a really good point, Martin, that they were students. They really absorbed different influences. And yeah, you bet they were studying the charts. The fact that they had listened to a Bobby Rydell song and they studied, this sounds very cold, what sells. Well, and while it's not right up front, there's certainly a touch of Motown about She Loves You. Oh, sure. The strong wow. beat, yep. particularly. Yep. I was just thinking, Ed, you know, arranged slightly differently, you could actually almost hear the standard Motan hand claps from the vocal group. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. That, yeah. Good point. I think Ringo really shines on drums on, on this song. Oh, for I mean, sure, for sure. Oh, yeah. and, and, you know, th that intro is just so perfect. And Darren Murphy told us on Fab a while back that that's just a repurposing of a standard drum exercise that you learn pretty early on it's just that Ringo picked up the beat on it you hit with your right hand and you hit with your left hand and you hit with your right hand and you hit with your left hand and that's all he's doing But it grabs your attention right away, just starting with that drum intro that immediately grabs your attention. And, of course, the other thing they have here is that final chord, and they were very proud of that. And I think George Martin wasn't exactly 
excited about that final chord. He thought, that's kind of a weird chord to end a pop song. But of course, the Beatles said, yeah, exactly. You know, we want to be different. We want to end on it. Now, George Martin later said, it's not like no one has ever used that chord before. But on a pop song? One of the interesting things about that, of course, was the the way it ended. And um, it ended on a major sixth. We brought it to George Martin. Hey, George, and we did, she loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. And the little sixth-type cluster that we got at the end of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. George said, no, no, no. I said, why? He said, it's very corny, that end, a sixth. He said, it's like the old days. Da, 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 da. He said, it's very corny. He said, I'd never do it. And we didn't understand. And I thought this was pretty corny. I, 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 you know, it used to, it was almost like Ben Miller's orchestration. And I told them so. I said, you know, do you have to do that? It's a bit, I've heard that so many times in my life. They'd never heard it before. They thought it was pretty smart. We just said, it's great, George. Such a great sound. He said, it's a sixth. We said, it doesn't matter. It's just great. And we just said, we've got to have it. We stuck out for that, you corny or not. So George would give us these sort of parameters. He'd say, you mustn't double a third. Or it's corny to end with a, a sixth. Well, it's how we like it, man. It's bluesy. And of course, they stuck to their guns and kept it. And they were quite right, because it is a hallmark of it. At the time, I thought it was pretty, pretty banal. But I thought the song was great. When you compare it to all the other songs that we've been talking about in these episodes and the other songs that were on the charts, nobody was doing that. The pop songs that we've been listening to, and, and certainly the rock songs, I mean, nobody was ending on chords like that. Or This was a different sound for rock. So they recorded this on the 1st of July, so they had to keep it under their hats for six weeks. Can you imagine the excitement that was building in the band? The four guys, if they knew Please Please Me was going to be a number one, that's like, this is going to be a smash. When they finished it, for sure. Absolutely. I'm sure they knew this had the potential to be big. As we've just talked about, they knew this formula. I mean, again, I hate to make it sound so calculated, but they knew they had the ingredients here for a massive hit. And so I bet they thought that. They thought, okay, do you think we record some great songs before? Wait to hear this one. <laughs> so since they had the song for six weeks or whatever by this point, had, the, had all four of them already been working the song up at this point? Or was it a case of them still going in and learning the song as they were recording it. They only wrote it five days before July 1st. At the end of June, when they wrote it on the Roy Orbison tour, John and Paul on the hotel. So, I mean, they'd only been at it for five days. And while George and Ringo had parts, you know, George, George would tinker with things. And he would continue to tinker with things. So it's kind of amazing that George came to something he liked and that was just so perfect so relatively quickly. Yeah. And they recorded a second song the same day. The B-side, I'll Get You, was also recorded that day. Another great song. <laughs> kind of an underappreciated song. But Paul McCartney is one to hold a grudge, as we have learned, and I'm sure we will learn more about as we hear him talking about these things in his new podcast. In Anthology, there's a quote where he still remembers what Brian Matthews said when he heard She Loves You. Oh, yes. He called it banal rubbish. <laughs> None of us had heard the word banal, and we thought, banal, what's that? Soppy? Too rebellious? <laughs> what does banal mean? But when the record zoomed to number one in the Melody Maker chart, 
the next week. He was on the front page disclaiming his comments. No, no, at first I thought maybe it was a little banal, but it grows on you. Now, Paul was talking about this in 94, or whatever it was, so clearly he remembered <laughs> exactly what Brian Matthews said. As we just mentioned, Brian Matthews was all too happy to have them play their new hit single on Saturday Club, and he he had to have acknowledged, yeah, that's going to be a hit. By the time that they recorded and you know, put it on the air, just a couple days after the single had been released. Exactly. So obviously he decided to put his personal opinion aside <laughs> and decided, well, regardless of what he thinks, it's a huge hit. But yes, as you said, Paul can hold grudges. And I'm, I'm also trying to remember if I thought Paul also said that, you know, that people said, some said at the time that it was, you know, was simplistic and that he definitely took that to heart. And, you know, maybe some people would say, well, compared to what the Beatles did later on, this was lyrically, you know, not as complex as, as some of the other songs they did. But again, this accomplished what it was set out to do. It had that sing-along quality to it, and it was so catchy, and it absolutely stands the test of time, I think. Well, and apologies to folks who liked the records from August 1963. It was a breath of fresh air. I mean, there were some holdover hits, which are you know great songs, but for the most part, the newish material on the charts in August of 63, as we'll see as we go through the charts wasn't great particularly on the american charts uh, with some exceptions i should say that with yeah some yeah, yeah, for, yeah for sure i mean yeah. you know there's there's always gonna be some good records but particularly again the new material because you know you got stevie wonder holding o- over from july which is you know great of course uh, but there just wasn't that much new material coming up behind it to keep things going the the charts were ready the british charts were ready for the next beatles single whatever it might be and the american charts were in need of something coming along and uh, changing the way things were exactly and and that will be a refrain when we get to the american charts that there will be some songs that are definitely representatives of some genres and sounds that by the following year will be missing from the charts, shall we say. <laughs> and then She Loves You would actually be the first song of the Beatles that would be played on American television. Jack Parr on the Jack Parr show. Well, and if you've ever seen or heard that clip, Jack Parr is not a fan. Oh my God. Yep, he, he's pretty... Uh... <laughs> It's pretty disparaging. I mean, he's pretty disparaging of them and the fans. And yeah, it's not pretty to watch. <laughs> but yeah, so the Par Show had obtained a clip from the Mersey Sound of the Beatles playing She Loves You. And, you know, that's what they played. And, and over it, you know, Par is making what we would call snarky comments nowadays. Isn't that the one where he says at one point where they're showing screaming girls in the audience something like, you know, I fear for the future of our country or something yes, like that. Yeah, exactly. It is a popular legend, and it is wrong, that Ed Sullivan was the first to bring the Beatles to this country. It is a part of uh, the legend that he was on Sullivan Show first. The first time the Beatles were ever seen was on the Sullivan Show. The press says that. Uh, your game of trivia says that. It's not true. I had the Beatles on by film. I had seen them in London and had them filmed. 
Now I'll admit to you, I never knew that these boys would change the history of the world's music, which they did. I thought it was funny. And I had them filmed and brought it to America months before Sullivan. And now I want to show you, and the reason we're going to show just a little bit of it is that there's something I say after uh, their little act which proves it. Would you show the Beatles, please? The Beatles. have the Beatles on live uh, in February and we are only our interest was just showing a more adult audience that usually follows my work uh, whenever, whenever I saw the Beatles uh, as they became the, the greatest musical act in the history of show business uh, I always felt sad because <laughs> it's my own feeling that um, when they split up the money, Ringo didn't get a full fee. <laughs> oh, don't you have a feeling that Ringo did not get a full quarter of the thing? Okay. Yeah, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Parr was, he was a hip guy for the time, and he just wasn't ready for the next generation. I mean, Jack Parr was one of the ones who really bought Lenny Bruce to the attention of the world. He, he has to get some credit for that, but but you can also see why Ed Sullivan would have that smirk, well, smirk for Ed when he dedicates it to Randy Parr and Johnny Carson. <laughs> well, and that's why, I mean, this is slightly off topic here, but I think that's why the Beatles were really smart uh, when they appeared on Ed Sullivan to do Till There Was You, because... You know, it was kind of a message to the older viewers and the parents of the teenagers who would be buying the records. All. See, we're not so scary. <laughs> <laughs> and then Capital rejected it as they would for, well, now, I mean, you know, we're only looking at three more months that Capital can reject the Beatles. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, and so it, it went to Swan and. Swan, which who had who really had no money, it was you know poor little Philadelphia label. If you think VJ was cash strapped, Swan was uh, oh, questionable. Yeah, even worse. So yeah, it was only picked up by a few you know U.S. radio stations. So I mean, astoundingly, <laughs> you know today, as we think about it, it, it didn't really go anywhere. The single. Well, and, and neither neither audio nor video exists, but. Dick Clark claims he played it on the weekday version of American Bandstand on Radio Record. Hmm, interesting. So, so according to Dick Clark's memories, it was uh, he played it. Some of the kids were, like, yeah, it's got a good beat, you can dance to it. But they gave it kind of a just fair mid seventies rating. And and then according again according to Dick Clark, and then I just pulled out this photo of these four guys, and the kids just giggled. <laughs> so oh. I mean you. I would assume he actually did it, but we have no records. No, we have nothing to back that up. 
Oh, and it's I mean, too bad. so I mean, again, although you know, now we say Parhat was a little bit hip. Dick Clark was always a little bit square. Ah, <laughs> uh, he was likable though. Well, I mean, you know, we again we we have to jump forward a little bit and into the future when when he would premiere the Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane videos. Oh, well, they yeah. look like somebody's grandfather's. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic. That whole thing. They look weird. <laughs> so, I mean, that she loves you and we know what's going to happen and next month when we get to it, as we've already said, in two weeks, it's going to jump to the top of the charts, and it's going to stay at the top of the charts until, well, something else from these guys knocks that record down. Yep. So this is yet another major change for uh, the British charts. So, yeah, this is pretty significant record. All right. So we're going to start with the British charts. The week of August the 6th, 1963. Now we're going to do things a little bit differently rather than, you know, reading things down every week. We're going to, for most of these songs, we're just kind of going to list how they go during the month. Starting out at number one. So so the song at the top of the charts, August 6th, 1963. It's that song that John Lennon gave a pretty serious thumbs down to. Devil in Disguise by Elvis. And that would go from... One to three to five to eleven, so it wouldn't stay at number one. Yeah. So, so John was uh, was wrong on that one. Wasn't a miss, I guess. It was indeed a hit. Although you know we've talked about Devil in Disguise a lot in the past few yeah. episodes. But, yes, but it's interesting. So at number two was Frank Ifield with Confessing, and he would stay at number two for most of the month of August. Good number old two, friend. number two, number two, and number four. Wow, our buddy. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Sweets for My Sweet from The Searchers is at number three this first week. Then for the next two weeks, it would be at number one. And then the last week in August, it would fall down to number two. So Martin was saying it's a classic in the UK. It showed it at the time. Yeah. At number four, Brian Poole and the Tremlos Twist and Shout, which would also stay at number four for the next two weeks and then fall down to number seven. At number six, I Like It by Jerry and the Pacemakers. That's on its way down the charts, from falling from 6 to 9 to 16 to 20. At number 9, Welcome to My World by Jim Reeves. You know, we talked last month about how Jim Reeves was a much bigger thing in England. You know, here, here's one of the, his songs at, at number 9. And then it, it would kind of sit around in the mid-teens for the rest of the month. It would fall to 15 and then number 13 for the last two weeks of the month. In a similar position... Kenny Lynch's You Can Never Stop Me Loving You, uh, it's at number 12 this week, and that would bounce up to number 10, then down to number 15 and number 17. At number 14, I Wonder by Brenda Lee. I wonder, my little darling, where can you be this moonlit night? Are you holding someone tight? I wonder Not one of Brenda Lee's better songs No, it's it's not I mean, she sings it extremely well She had such an incredible voice But this is definitely not One of her better tracks I don't think yeah. Also, is it the second appearance Of a song written and recorded Originally by Private Cecil Grant? I think Kit's hmm. mentioned him before, haven't you, Kit? 
Yes, you are correct. Yeah, this is uh, this is her cover. That's right. I kind of like his version better. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's different. I wonder, my little darling, where can you be again tonight while the moon is shining bright I wonder I, I suppose it's unfair to compare them because you know his version is more soul you know yeah. and, and hers is you know Brenda Lee definitely had kind of a soulful quality to her voice but it leaned a little more in the countryside and so I kind of liked his original better but it was a different sound. I mean, his was just like pretty much him and the piano. And whereas hers obviously is more of that Nashville kind of sound. But yeah, it's not one of my favorites of hers. The album but, it comes from, you know, the Brenda Lee song, it's mm-hmm. from an album called By Request, which is, as it says, you know, it's a load of songs that, you know, are like cover versions of songs. And it features her doing the song Blue Velvet, which we're going to look at again later. Lots of people did Blue Velvet. As mentioned, that's a little bit later in the show. At number 15, theme from The Legion's Last Patrol by Ken Thorne. I don't care for this. It kind of reminds me of the Ballad of the Green Berets. Yeah, it's interesting that this was a hit, but it sounds cinematic. His version wasn't in the film, but the song originates from a film that was called The Legion's Last Patrol in the UK, and it was released in the US as Commando. Okay. It was a war film uh, about the uh, Algerian War of Independence, And this was the theme music from the film, which originally was by an Italian composer. And this is a cover version of that song. And there is a Beatles connection. Apparently Dick Lester and George Martin didn't get along real well. No. And in fact, in our buddy Ken Womack's biography of uh, George Martin, he talks about this. And yeah, they really didn't. (laughs) They did not hit it off. And so Richard Lester made sure that the film score for help went to Ken Thorne. And so when you hear this song, you definitely think of the songs on the U.S. help soundtrack and in the film, of course. 
what it told me was he had the talent for doing pastiches, which of course would come into play in the James Bond theme intro to help on the American version of the soundtrack. Absolutely. And so when you hear this, it definitely sounds cinematic, but you definitely think, you know, wow, I mean, this he had to do two rearrangements of Beatles songs, the fake Bond intro to help. And so he certainly was talented. So when you hear this, you immediately will think, oh, yeah, I can hear the similarities from help. And of course, George Martin claims that part of the reason why Lester did not care for him or his musical arranging was that George Martin would get an Academy Award nomination for Hard Day's Night. Yep. And And Dick Lester did not. Yes. (laughs) And it's very interesting. As I said, if you want to read more about that, check out Ken Womack's book. He writes a bit more about the tensions that they experience. So you definitely see why uh, they did not work together again on help. Well, and Ken Thorne would become close buddies with Dick Lester, he would be around to score much of Dick Lester's career. Uh, Superman 2, Superman 3, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Yeah, I didn't realize they worked that long together. Well into the 80s. Wow. Well, there you go. There's your Beatles connection. All right. At number 16, Buddy Holly's Bo Diddley, which we've talked about before. It's still in the charts. It is also on its way down uh, over the month of August. It goes to from 16 to 21 to... 33 to 49. Yep, great version. At number 17, there's that last Beatles single. It's still on the charts, but it too has had its time in, in the sun. It's falling off in preparation of the new single. For me to you, it had had seven weeks at number one. Here wow. it's at number 17, and then it falls off from 17 to 20 to 27 to 37 uh, in August. That's it. The group are done now. Fly by nights. <laughs> Well, uh, assuming you haven't listened to the first 20 minutes of this show. (laughs) Okay, at number 18, Falling by Roy Orbison, another great song that we've spoken of previously. I mean, you know, as I say, maybe it's because it's the dog days of summer, but there's a lot of these songs which are just kind of hanging around. So it's at number 18. It would have one more week in the charts at number 27. At number 23, Freddie and the Dreamers, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody, it would fall to number 31 before falling off the charts in two weeks. At number 30, Billy J's Do You Want to Know a Secret, it would also fall off the charts. So we also have a lot of songs falling off the charts here. It would fall to number 46 and disappear the week after that. At number 32, Come On by the Rolling Stones. We spent a lot of time talking about them last month. Mm-hmm. It's it's on the rise, but not very quickly. It's e- moving even more slowly than Love Me Do did back in October. It goes from number 32 this week to number 28 to number 25 to number 24. Yep, their debut single. Then at number 34, we've got the new Billy J single written by... John Lennon. Lennon and McCartney. Bad to me. I like the song, and I think Billy J. Kramer did a really great job on lead vocals. I think it's you yeah, know. it's a little bit milk toast to me. I much prefer John's lead on the demo to what Billy J. does. Yeah, I mean, I do like John's demo a lot, but I think Billy J. knew this was a pop record, and you know, adjusted his voice accordingly. I think it's the sound of the time. The birds in the sky would be sad and lonely if they knew that I lost my one and only they'd be sad. If 
He has this kind of dreamy, croony kind of voice on this. Uh, certainly, it's another example of how John, from an early time, knew how to write a hook. You know, the guitar lick and the melody are catchy. And also, that demo you just mentioned really demonstrates that even though this is a pop record, when the lyrics aren't deep, the chord changes and melody have some sophistication to them, even at this early stage of their careers. So you see how their songwriting, you know, the Lennon-McCartney team songwriting is really developing quickly, even at this early stage. But I know you won't leave me, you told me so. there remains some question as to how much it is a Lennon-McCartney composition. Right, there's some controversy. John certainly started the song toward the end of that Spanish holiday with Brian, and and some people claim that the lyrics may actually be about Brian. I I don't know, I'm not going to take it there, but you can read them, and that interpretation is at least a little bit valid. Yep, and supposedly, and there's been debate about this too, that Paul contributed to some of the lyrics, you know, possible that he may have helped, you know, with revision or something. Who knows? And it should be mentioned that that was a contemporaneous interview that, you know, that was with John and Paul in 1964. So, you know, it's entirely possible. We know that that was kind of the way they work anyway. It's like, well, I got most of this. You want to punch it up a little bit? Sure. Right. Exactly. So that's entirely possible. I like the Dakotas music in the background. I think that's really good. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The lead guitar on it particularly is really good. It's a solid pop record. The charts are getting ready to ramp up in the Brian Epstein, George Martin direction again. You know, kind of a little break for it here, end of July, beginning of August. But that's all about to change yet again. Mm-hmm. So at number 50, there's the Beach Boys with Surfing USA. That might have been a little bit odd for a single on the British charts, you kind of think? Yeah. <laughs> We'll be talking about it in the American chart, but we're going to see a lot of surfing in the American. But yeah, and, and you kind of expect that in a way in the American charts. But yeah, interesting that you know, you're seeing it here in the British charts. But of course, the Beatles were huge Beach Boys fans. And so this is certainly where they've been listening to it. But I mean, the Beach Boys just, you know, they were just so good. They had such great harmonies, great music. So they figured you know, it had mass appeal, no matter whether you were living in California or not. <laughs> and we can't forget that the USA was still kind of the ideal at that point. And so mm-hmm. you know, maybe it wasn't just an odd thing. Maybe it was something to be attracted to. Not only do you have the Chuck Berry influence, and you know, of course Chuck Berry wrote Living in the USA. So Yeah, that's true. 
I mean, you know, the sort of thing that Paul would later parody in back in the USSR. So maybe it wasn't something questionable or something like, gee, why do we want to buy a record about California and surfing? And surfing is not very big in England, is it? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> <laughs> On to the second week in August, August the 13th, jumping up 23 slots all the way to a number 11 is Billy J's Bad to Me. Wow, that's a big jump. There's one of those exceptions where we'll talk about multiple times. All right, at number 33, the Springfields with Come On Home. Dusty's voice on this really shines. This has been one of the great things about doing this show is that really wasn't familiar with the Springfields. You know, really didn't know much about Dusty's career before she went solo. And I mean, it's just really fascinating to hear her with her family group, her brother and all. Yeah, she's just incredible uh, on this song. And interestingly enough, uh, she is quoted as saying that the exciters tell him was one of the songs which really influenced her to go in a new direction. Hmm. Well, I guess I could see that because when she went solo and had the blue-eyed soul sound, the exciters were the soul soul pop group. And, and so I guess that would make sense that they would influence her. You want other thing from a social perspective. It turns out that Dusty was actually a lesbian. I didn't know that. Yes. You know, much like... We hear the stories about, oh, you can't say that John Lennon's married. I mean, obviously, they, sh- they couldn't say that she's a lesbian, but they had to put her with somebody. Mm-hmm. The record industry people had to find a beard for her, which is, oh, wow, okay. And, and there's, there's some claims that she developed her specific look, almost a hyper-feminine look, to kind of make sure that no one suspected anything. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. It was a different time. But man, she just, oh, her voice is just incredible. All right. At number 34, I'm Telling You Now by Freddie and the Dreamers. Ah, yes. Now, (laughs) every time I hear this song, all I can think of is their performance on Ed Sullivan. Not from 63. I think it was in 65 that they appeared, because it was re-released in the U.S. This past week, those of us who live at the Hotel Delmonico have been forced, actually, to fight our way through mobs of youngsters standing outside the hotel day and night to get the autographs of these boys. So my little chickadees, here from Manchester, England, Freddie and... Yeah, it would become a hit later. It would be part of the British invasion, quote-unquote. I just remember seeing on the Ned Sullivan compilation, their rather enthusiastic choreography, the huge steps, the maniacal laughter, that fake shaving move he had, whatever that was about, the crazy jumps, and they were performing this song. So every time I hear this... 
I always think of that. <laughs> performance i cannot listen to the song without thinking of that <laughs> i think that may have been the first time i may have seen that at a fest for beatles fans or something i just remember seeing that clip and i don't think i knew who they were at the time and i just thought what <laughs> it was indeed featured prominently in those 80s compilations that they that used to play on PBS all the time. That must have been where I'd seen it, yeah. And so when I saw this, was I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> that song. <laughs> well, we cannot let this song pass without mentioning that the co-writer of this song with Freddie Garrity is Mitch Murray. And you can hear that Mitch Murray sound. Oh, for sure. Oh, and again, very singable. You can absolutely sing along to it. And I guess this is the song that really propelled them to international stardom. Well, that and do the Freddy. <laughs> All right. At number 50, uh, It's Too Late Now by the Swinging Blue Jeans. It's a re-entry. We've talked about that song before. That's one of those things you see in these charts Songs do tend to move around, you know, bounce up and down. So it would spend two more weeks in the charts at number 46, which is really not kind of the way the charts proceeded from the time when I was starting to pay attention to them, you know, through the 70s into the 80s. It was always, we're going to have a nice smooth up. We're going to reach wherever we're going to be. We might stick around at the highest position, and then we're going to fall down. Mm-hmm. All right, the week of August the 20th. So I'm telling you now, moved all the way up to number 14 from number 34, so 20 spots. Another thing we could say about the British charts at these times, it was a little bit surprising that the Beatles moved so fast, but that seems to be the way of records in Great Britain in 1963. Mm -hmm. You know, 20 slots, 25 slots. Now, the Beatles were better at it, but still. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting how quickly some of these records would move. It's, it doesn't really happen as often these days. Sometimes. The charts nowadays are a completely different beast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so Good point. All right. At number 22, the Dakotas, Billy Jay's backing band with the Cruel C, which we've talked about. You know, So it's still in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. At number 23, the song which... We were just speaking of a Mitch Murray song and the band playing it hated it. By the way, by the big three. By the way that your eyes seem to shine, I can tell you're mine. Tell you're mine. By the way that your lips are upon, I am sure it's time. You know, it's interesting. The very beginning of it reminded me of the Beatles' Tell Me Why. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. The very beginning of it. By the way that you look, I can see you're the best in town. Best in town. It was very strange. The lyrics are pretty basic pop stuff. I did like the drumming on this a lot, particularly the fill between the lyrics, oh, by the way, and then there was a kind of a drum roll, and then I love you. Oh, by the way, I love you. That was pretty.
pretty catchy. But other than that, I can kind of see why the big three you know, weren't all that crazy about it. Before I read their comments, the B-side is really actually pretty cool. The Cavern Stomp, which is one of their original oh, yeah. songs. You know, it's a pretty generic rocker, but it name drops all these Liverpool sites, which, you know, are now common history to all of us. Keep your job and your rock and roll to the Cavern Stomp. That's fun. That sounds like maybe what they would have performed live. To me, this is just sort of a generic pop song. It's fine, but I don't know. What do you guys think? So reading what the big three said at the time, and I want some comments on how accurate you think this statement is. He, he meaning Brian Epstein, had them record Mitch Murray numbers, which were totally unsuitable for the group. Commenting to Spencer Lee on the DECA recordings, Gus Gustafson of the big three said... It was arms up the back. Do it, boys, or it's all over. We didn't like it, but we tried our best. We hated, by the way, and I'm with you, because they were pop songs. Poppy, horrible, three-chord, Jerry and the Pacemakers type songs. Ouch. That's kind of nasty. Yes. We've made some similar comments. We can't say that we haven't. Mm-hmm. We may like those type of songs a little bit more, but this is another one that's very definitely a Mitch Murray number. Yeah. And I think it was probably totally unsuitable for the big three. But my question is, is it Brian that made them record it? Is it the producer? Brian tended to stay away from the actual material that the bands would do. Brian didn't, as far as I know, force you know the Beatles to record How Do You Do It? That was George Martin. And, of course, it wasn't released, but, I mean, George insisted they record it. I don't think Brian did. I don't think he was involved in that. So, I don't know. Good question. It's just kind of a weird thing. You have anything to say about that, Martin? Yeah, I just thought that that was a nasty thing to say about Jerry and the Pacemakers. I mean, he's slightly right in that Jerry and the Pacemakers were more suited to that sort of material. Mm -hmm. But, yes, it's kind of a nasty comment. Um, I mean, they did pop, but it was good pop. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I just didn't think this was a particularly strong pop song. I mean, there's nothing wrong with light pop and it doesn't all have to be necessarily, you know, deep or anything. But I just thought this was a very formulaic kind of song. Sorry, Big Three yeah. fans or Mitch Murray fans. <laughs> yeah. here, here come the apologies. But... <laughs> But I guess I don't have to apologize for the big, big three didn't like it. You know, Gus Gustafson clearly hated it. Mm-hmm. Well, so. and, and for good reason. I just think it's a very blah pop song, very generic. And this would absolutely be the end of their association with Brian. So if Brian was the one who was pushing this material on them, you know, maybe I could see why they just kind of had enough. But without Brian... They just kind of drifted away. Sadly. All right. At number 27, there's For Me To You. At number 39, a song we've spoken of on the American side, Surf City by Jan and Dean. This was one of Brian Wilson's very first songs to show up on record. Mm -hmm. And Jan was the producer of the song. He arranged and produced it. He was also kind of adopting the wall sound style. Two drummers, multiple guitars, and multiple basses. Yep. And it's a classic. It's a great song. Well, I mean, you know, you've got some really good players on there, haven't you? You know, you've got the best of the best. The Wrecking Crew, Al Blaine, Glenn Campbell, Earl Palmer. It's just 
interesting to me that they were all in with the same crowd and they knew Phil Spector, but the wall of sound was not just a Phil Spector thing. Other people were experimenting in the same direction. Yeah. I don't know if I've yeah. said this somewhere else, but I know I've said it with, with when I've spoken with Kit before elsewhere, but I said before... I think Jan, with his production, and Brian, with his productions with the Beach Boys, actually do a better job of the wall of sound than Phil Spector does. Hmm. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Mm-hmm. All right, at number 46, It's Too Late Now by the Swinging Blue Jeans. Now, we should mention, this is the week. This is when She Loves You is coming out. Yep. Right so. here, right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. The charts would take a week to catch up, obviously. you know The records have to go out, people have to buy them, the returns have to come in. But this is the week when it all happens. Here we go. So, so the final week in August, August the 27th, 1963, at number one, There's Bad to Me by Billy J. Fast rise, and now you know by the end of the month, here it is at number one. We're back into George Martin and Brian Epstein land. Back on top. The big three are kind of going... What a crummy song. Everybody else is having hits with... <laughs> Brian's making hits out of everyone, out of bloody Billy J. Kramer, and he can't do anything for us. I don't know. I like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking he did a great job on this yeah. song. And his voice is great on this track. Yeah. At number 20 was I Like It. At number 37 mm-hmm. was For Me To You. At number 38 was a little song called Acapulco 1922 by Kenny Ball and his Jasmine. Oh, Martin, read what you said. What is it? Under it notes. My exact words were in the notes. Hmm, hello, 1920s. Get out your Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> mentioned this story before but this is the other half we mentioned it before in relation to Ackerbilt when Mick Jagger would uh, put uh, the Beatles into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame what he said was the big hits here that came from England were things like Ackerbilt Stranger on the Shore this is what they thought of in England A Midnight in Moscow by Kenny Ball it's not this song but it's Kenny Ball now we all remember that one Yeah, I mean, this was part of what they call the trad jazz craze at the time. But yeah, Ackerbilk, Chris Barber, and Kenny Ball. And this song, believe it or not, was actually first recorded by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Hmm. Brass. And in fact, Dave Alpert, the older brother of Herb, wrote it. And so apparently, Kenny Ball and his jazz men recorded this version, obviously a bit different than Herb Alpert's version. And it was featured in the 1963 film Live It Up, which featured Gene Vincent. And so that's, I'm assuming, how the song became popular. And here's a bit of a tenuous Beatles connection here. Kenny Ball appeared with his jazz band. We may have mentioned this before. I'm not sure. In the 1962 British musical movie, it's Trad Dad, directed by Richard Lester. So it's a little bit, it's a tenuous connection, but it's there. (laughs) It definitely sounds like something from the 20s. Here it is. 
the giant jazz musical you've been waiting for. Ring-a-ding rhythm. With the most exciting lineup of top jazz bands and singers ever jammed into one film spectacular. And introducing England's sensational Helen Shapiro. See what happens when a pair of singing, swinging teenagers turn Squaresville into Hipsville. Ring-a-ding rhythm. A fantastic fun festival with the greatest names in jazz music from both sides of the Atlantic. Trad. It's the new jazz fad. See it, hear it, with the world's top pop singers and hottest trad band. For sure. Well, as opposed to the big three and Mitch Murray, I think Mick is probably justified in his comments about Acker Bilk and Kenny Ball, though. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, at number 44, Del Shand with two silhouettes. I just have one question about the song. How did he get by ripping off two silhouettes, uh, two silhouettes on the shade? The lyrics are almost the same. I know. When I first saw the title, I thought that. It was like, oh, two silhouettes on the shade. Well, okay. And then I start listening to it, and I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, it's similar. Different song, but the lyrics, he steals, say, 60% of the lyrics. I was walking to my baby's house late tonight. And, and of course, in the ending, he didn't go to the wrong house. That's the big <laughs> twist. Oh, no, he did go to the right house. John Lennon would refer to Two Silhouettes in no reply. Not this song, the original Two Silhouettes on the Shade. The actual Two Silhouettes on the Shade. But uh, yep. but yeah, so. this was fascinating to listen to as I just thought that. you know, When I first saw the title, like, oh, this is a cover, right? No. But yeah, same basic idea. But I guess he got away with it by saying, no, this time I did go to the right house. (laughs) (laughs) It's another one of those Del Shannon songs. This is maybe a little bit lesser, you know, for whatever reason, maybe because he didn't want to compete against the Beatles version. He did not have a hit with his cover for me to you. So, I mean, they had to put something else out and this is what they chose. Unfortunately. Yeah, I think this was the B-side. Was Um, it? Absolutely. All right, we will be back soon with Side B, the American Charts, and we'll talk to you then. I didn't say a single thing there. See you next time. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought how stupid that is. 
how stupid is is one of those phrases that someone an older person who doesn't understand teenagers comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month top of most of the popper most